0: Matthew chapter 5. Today I want to give you an overview of the Beatitudes and then and then uh, move, move on to the next few verses. because So it's pretty much an overview of the introduction to the whole Sermon on the Mount. These verses have been, uh, the first few verses here, have been come to known as the Beatitudes, the attitudes that ought to be in us. If you want to look at it that way, that's a good way to look at it. They launch what has been come to uh, be regarded, I think, as as the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who has ever preached. So if you're not familiar with Matthew 5-7, through I suggest you become really familiar with it. It is known as the Sermon on the Mount. It is the first recorded sermon that we actually have of of Jesus preaching. Jesus here defined the character of the kingdom of heaven. What is the character of heaven? Uh, what is the the character of the kingdom of heaven into which people enter when they are saved? It was really a heart-searching sermon, isn't it? We've looked at each of these Beatitudes individually. Now we want to kind of get the big picture, if you will. Climb into the airplane with me for a moment. And we're going to fly over the forest called the Beatitudes. What is Jesus doing here? Well, he's answering several questions for us. Number one, how do we enter into the kingdom of heaven? How do we enter into the kingdom of heaven? You want to know how to get to heaven? Jesus knows how to get there because he's been there. And then he gives the defining marks of not just true saving faith, but he gives us the defining marks of what true godliness looks like. Someone who is saved is going to have these defining marks in them. This is what true spirituality is, what distinguishes true religion from dead religion. Okay? And really, it's helpful to understand the spiritual climate of, of Jesus' time here. Uh, you have to understand the Israelites were a people who were very religious, but they were lost. The, the majority of them were lost. And I'm not saying they're all unsaved, I'm not saying they're all on their way to hell, okay? Uh, certainly, there were some who were saved. But certainly the majority of them were. But they thought they were saved. They thought they were on their way to the kingdom of heaven because they were very religious. They did a lot of good things. And so what Jesus Christ does here in this sermon, he gives the defining marks of what true conversion looks like and what true godliness and true piety is. And this has great significance for us in New Zealand, doesn't it? Because in New Zealand, we're in a country that's filled with dead religion and lifeless Christianity. We need authentic Christianity. Authentic Christianity. And that's why we need to hear the message that Jesus gives to us here. So, I want to just kind of give an overview of this, kind of bring us back to the book of Matthew. So, let's fly over this forest Uh, we don't want to get lost in the trees. We've looked at the individual trees here. So let's kind of get a bird's eye view, if you will, of the forest called the Beatitudes. Well, first of all, we need to understand who is the preacher here. Who is the preacher? As we look at these, uh, I've I've entitled this, How to Find True Happiness. We all want to be happy, right? None None of you are sitting there saying, you know, I really want to be sad. I, I I love crying all the time. You know, I I love being in despair and depressed. Anyone like that? You know, no nobody. You know, that really surprises me. Nobody wants to be sad. No, that doesn't surprise me at all. We we want to be happy. We we like happiness. Well, if you want to be happy, Jesus tells us how to find true happiness here. So we want to see who this preacher of true happiness is. As I told you, I think he is the greatest preacher who ever lived. He's, he's perfect, so how can he not be? But we also need to understand that this, this one who came in human flesh is also God. He is, God. he is God and man together in one. He is the God-man. God the Father, by the way, only had one son. And he sent him into this world to preach. Which is one of the reasons I like being a preacher. So I want you to see what happens here in uh, Matthew chapter 4. We're going to look at the last part of Matthew 4 to start with. Matthew chapter 4. Look at verse 23. Matthew 4, 23. It says, He, that's Jesus Christ, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics. And he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Now, what I want you to to get, if you get anything else from this, is Please understand this. Get the idea, in case you're not looking at I suggest you look at a Bible map, by the way, a Bible atlas. And you get the idea here. You've got people coming from all over the place. People are coming from north, south, east, west. By the way, Decapolis is a ten-city region. So a lot of people are coming. They're coming from north, south, east, and west. They want to hear Jesus. Notice that Jesus... When all these people come to him, he does what typical rabbis of that time would do. If you look at verse 1 of chapter 5, chapter, uh, uh, chapter 5 verse 1 says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So he sits down. He takes the position of a rabbi, a Jewish teacher of the law. He begins teaching. And to really understand what happens in this sermon, it's helpful to go to the end of the sermon and find out what was the response to Jesus' teaching. So look at chapter 7. Chapter 7, very end of the sermon. I want you to see the the response to Jesus' teaching. Chapter 7, verse 28. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority, and not as their scribes. So as you can see there, the people were astonished. He actually had authority in what he was teaching. They were literally awestruck. And this is what was so so desperate at that time, and what is so desperate today, by the way, You say, well, what is that? It's the centrality and the primacy of preaching. I hope you want the same thing I want. I want to have a word-centered church. And by word, I mean capital W, word-centered church. The church is going to rise and fall on the pulpit, essentially. Okay, And by pulpit, I mean the preaching of the word of God. Uh, Someone has said, so goes the pulpit, so goes the church. If you get sermonettes for Christianettes from the pulpit every Sunday, what do you think the the people in the congregation are going to be like? you got fluffy sermons, you know, preaching to people's felt needs. That's not really ministering the Word of God in an appropriate way. So when the church has been the strongest is is when there has been a restoration of biblical preaching. And so when the pulpit's weak, the church becomes sickly, becomes anemic, and sadly sometimes dies. So I hope you you understand the importance of being a word-centered church. I hope you're firmly behind that idea and that concept and that belief. So would you pray with me that God would raise up godly, word-centered preachers in our congregation? And, and around New Zealand, we, we so desperately need it, as well as the Solomon Islands for that fact. I mean that's that's my whole purpose. in going there is to to help to raise up uh, biblical preachers of the Word of God. Well, now we come to what has been known as the Beatitudes, these attitudes that ought to be in us. So let me just uh, come to this now and just kind of quickly read through this and then we'll we'll just kind of get an overview here, okay? Starting in Matthew 5, verse 2, Jesus starts giving these attitudes. Look at verse 2. He opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. And by the way, the idea of blessed there is happy. So you want to know how to find happiness? Jesus tells us how to find happiness here. As he says, happy are the poor in spirit. Verse 4, happy are those who mourn. Verse 5, blessed or happy are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So we see the promise of true happiness in the, here in the Beatitudes. There is a promise, many promises actually. Now one of the things I love about Jesus' sermon is it starts so positively. I don't think there's ever been a sermon that started as positively as Jesus' sermon did. Each verse, in fact, starts with the word blessed. Each person inside the kingdom of heaven, Jesus is saying, is Blessed. And so all who, then you take the other side of it, if you will, in contrast to that, all who are outside the kingdom of heaven are not blessed. They're not going to receive this blessedness. It's only the ones who are inside the kingdom of heaven, those who have been truly converted, those who are truly saved. What is this blessedness, you ask? What is this happiness that Jesus is preaching about here? Well, first of all, it speaks of eternal salvation. Jesus is preaching about eternal life, eternal salvation, as opposed to being eternally cursed, being thrown into the lake of fire forever and ever. It's a literal place, by the way, the lake of fire. It's a place of eternal torment, eternal punishment. All those who do not put their trust in Jesus Christ alone go to the lake of fire, Jesus says but all those who do trust in Christ alone for eternal life for their salvation for the forgiveness of sins will be going to the kingdom of heaven so it speaks of eternal salvation that's that's the first thing we need to mention here and the bible says that you and I have been weighed in the balances and have been found wanting so so if you're sitting here with that that ungodly unbiblical worldly philosophy that that somehow your good works will outweigh your bad works. Jesus says that's not the case. Okay? When you stand before the judge of the universe, my friend, your good works won't have a chance. <laughs> In fact, Jesus or the Bible says it's like filthy rags. That's the best you have to offer. So you will be found wanting at judgment day. The Bible says we've all sinned and we've come short of God's glory. God has a very high standard, doesn't He? It's His holiness, His utter sinlessness and uniqueness, which no one on planet Earth has ever attained or ever will attain. So, this blessedness, this happiness, speaks of eternal salvation. Number two, what is this blessedness? It speaks of true happiness. It's a contentment of heart and soul, A true contentment of heart and soul. Rejoicing in the Lord. Being glad. You you see that concept here in the Beatitudes. Rejoicing in the Lord. Being glad. Each verse, by the way, I'll remind you, starts with the word blessed. But verse 12 helps to define, uh, give a definition of blessedness. It starts with the word rejoice. At least in many Bible translations it does. We are blessed because we have entered the kingdom and because you and I, if you're a believer, are objects of God's grace. By the way, you don't need a second blessing. Sadly, there are people who teach this concept, you need the second blessing after you're saved. My friend, you received all blessing at conversion. If you put your faith in Christ alone... And and you're trusting in Him for the forgiveness of your sins? You're trusting in Him to pay the penalty for your sin, which, by the way, is death? My friend, you were converted. You were born again. You received all blessing at that moment. The Holy Spirit entered you, the Bible says. And the Holy Spirit is now residing within you. You are His temple, the Bible says. So far, we've seeing the preacher and the promise. Now I want you to see that there's also a paradox here. Paradox is something that seems upside down. It almost seems like it's, it's, it's like opposites. Everything seems to be upside down in this passage, doesn't it? I mean, think about it. It seems contrary to what reality is. It's contrary to what the ads on the TV tell you. It's contrary to what the magazine articles tell you and the newspapers. It's, it's contrary to what your unsaved workmates tell you. It's Contrary to what your family members probably tell you. The things we see here seem to be the opposite to what one would normally think, if you're unsaved, that is. So what you find is here that the kingdom is different to what the world tries to tell us. For example, um, I, I, lo- I love the word oxymoron. It's a great word. That's the idea here. What, what, what this is here really is, is oxymorons. Now, I hope you understand what an oxymoron is, in case you don't. Uh, it's two opposites that are joined together. Two opposites that are joined together. Let me just tell you a couple of my favorite ones. Uh, rap music. I love that one, don't you? You love that one, don't you? Rap music they just they don't it's not rap and it's not music anyway freezer burn i mean freezer burn something that's really cold burns you right it's an oxymoron it's it seems to be opposite but it but it goes together right christian science it's not christian and it's not science it, what how would they come up with that i'm not sure so, the point here is this, okay? I just used those examples to show you. we got all these oxymorons that, that are going on here. Uh, seemingly opposite things that Jesus is throwing together. Everything in God's kingdom is paradoxical. And this is one reason why the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel is so dangerous. The health, wealth, and prosperity gospel that is so prevalent in our churches around the country and around the world teaches you know you just 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 believe in christ and you know you're going to be healthy wealthy wise and famous and you know everything's going to go good you're never going to have any more problems well in the true kingdom of god there's no promise of health and wealth and prosperity jesus didn't promise that there's no way that i could preach that if jesus didn't preach that that is my friend the devil's lie so many people are fooled into believing the devil's lie because they hear it coming from the pulpits of our churches around the country. There is no promise of health, wealth, and prosperity. In fact, Jesus promises the opposite here, doesn't he? He promises persecution. Persecution. Oh, what does the world tell us? What does the world tell us? Well, the world tells us things like, if you, for example, you look at verse 3. The world says, Happy are the self-confident and the self-reliant. You know, you just got to make your way through life, as the Nike commercial says. Just do it. In verse 4, the world says, happy are those who seek pleasure. You know, happy are the hedonists. Hedonism, yeah, that's the way to go. You know, just seek seek pleasure. You know, if you you get a buzz from going bungee jumping, then do it. Whatever you need to do. Verse 5, the world says happy are those who push their way around and demand their own rights. You know, you're number one. You deserve a break today at McDonald's, right? right. You know, happy are the proud, the powerful, and the important. That's what the world says. And then you look at verse 6, the world says happy are the full and the drunk. You know, go, go have a party with your friends. Doesn't matter if you're not going to feel very good tonight or the next morning, you know, but just go get drunk. Have a good time. Happier are the satisfied, the well-adjusted, and the practical. And then in verse 7, the world says, "Happier are those who stand up and demand their rights. You know, happier those who have power and do whatever they like. <laughs> happy are the playboys of this world. You know, got a lot of money, seem to, you know, don't care about authority, do whatever they want. Verse eight: The world says happy are the perverted and the polluted. Verse nine: The world says happy are the rich, the famous, and the popular. Those are the ones that are that are on the front pages of the tabloids, aren't they? You ever seen those those uh, those magazines at checkout counter? You go to the grocery store or the dairy, right? You see them all the time there, don't you? They got the so-called the rich and the famous plastered all over, and of course, you know they're airbrushed, got to cover all the flaws. They don't really look like that. You've know, you got to make them look good. Heaps of problems. They're always talking about divorces and all the other things that are happening in their lives. The world says, Happy are those kind of people. The rich, the famous, and the popular. Happy are the, those who don't rock the boat. Well, that's what the world says. But what does God say? <laughs> What does God say? Jesus doesn't say those things here, does he? In fact, you get the idea that, according to Romans 12, too, in fact, we're by the way, we're commanded, do not be conformed to this world. That is a command, a continuous command. Romans 12 says, don't allow yourself to be pressed into the world's mold. The world is trying to conform you to itself. With all these un- ungodly, unbiblical, false ways of thinking, belief systems. And, and, you know, if, if you're not discerning, and you're not praying for the Holy Spirit to give you discernment, you're going to be sucked into all these things. Don't be conformed to this world. Instead, be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Number four, let's look at the progression here. There is a progression, a God-inspired progression here in this passage. You want to know how to attain true happiness? Jesus tells us. There's a supernatural progression to blessedness or happiness. There's a reason why number one comes first. Jesus put that there for a reason. He wasn't just throwing this off the top of his head. And by the way, there's also a reason why number eight is last. I'll show you that in a moment. The first four actually stand together. We've talked about this already. Okay. Some of those are on the internet. You want to listen to those individual messages, I encourage you to go to the internet. And you get the first four, you see the elements of true saving faith. You want to know how to get to heaven? Jesus tells us here. And it starts with humility, by the way. You can't get to heaven without humility. You've got to humble yourself before a holy God and recognize that You stand guilty before this holy God. You deserve eternal punishment. That's where it starts. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. So the first four beatitudes lead the sinner from darkness to light, leads the the sinner from hell to heaven. You want to know how to escape hell? Jesus tells you in those first four beatitudes. They comprise that narrow gate that ushers people into the kingdom of heaven. Verse 3, we see there in verse 3, there must be a recognition that I have nothing to offer God. I am poor in spirit. I have nothing to offer Him except my sin. When I was saved at age 5, I could not stand before God and say, you know, man, God, you're lucky. You get me. Man, you know, you're so lucky. What would you do without me? No, I couldn't do that. None of us can do that. That's foolish. That's foolish. I have nothing to offer God, neither do you. I come empty-handed. I am poor in spirit. And then in verse 4, you'll see a progression here. If, if you're humble, that's the first element of true saving faith, it's going to lead to the second one. As you recognize your sin, then you're going to do what? What's, what's the next one? You're going to weep. You're going to mourn over your sin. You're going to say, whoa, <laughs> man. This is the best I have to offer God, and actually separates me from Him. This is not good. I'm not good at all. I need to repent of my sin. So this godly sorrow is going to lead to true saving faith. My friend, if you have never wept and mourned over your sin, then you are not saved. You are not on your way to heaven. And if you die today, you're going to wake up in hell. It's a real place. Not to be taken lightly. Godly sorrow is going to lead to true saving faith. Let me make this clear to you, okay? Nobody laughs themselves into heaven. Nobody laughs themselves into heaven. You get to heaven through mourning and weeping. That's what Jesus says. And then in verse 5, after we recognize that we are spiritually bankrupt, okay? Before God, we have a bank account, right? Right? And not only is the bank empty, it's worse than that, my friend. Your bank account with God is not only empty, you have this huge, huge account where you you owe not millions, not billions, not even trillions. It's, It's immeasurable. You owe God something that there's no possible way you could ever pay it back. That's how bad we are. We're spiritually bankrupt and we need to repent of our sin. And then we see here, there's this lowering of ourselves before the lordship of Christ. He's master. And when he's master, and you recognize that, that has um, a flow on effect to every single part of your life. Jesus doesn't become a part of your life. He is your life. So there needs to be a sweet surrender. And then in verse 6, this attitude completes the saving faith here in verse 6, it's, those who are meek, happy or blessed are those who are meek. they're the ones who will inherit the earth. That completes saving faith, the, the last element of true saving faith. And then we see that there's this hungering of righteousness that is not your own. Someone who's saved is going to hunger for, for what they need is Christ righteousness. So this completes this first level. There's four steps that lead through the narrow gate into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said, if you don't walk through that narrow gate, that means you're on the broad road to destruction, by the way. There's only two gates. One goes to heaven, one's the broad road to destruction. So the order here is is absolutely perfect. Of course, Jesus always does everything right and perfect. So, by the way, even after salvation, these first four attributes should continue in our lives, okay? Just because you think you're a Christian or are a Christian doesn't mean you can stop being humble or meek or any of the rest of those. My friend, those, those are things we should continue throughout our lives, well, let's look at the second level, or this la- the last four Beatitudes. And here we, we see how we're going to give evidence of true Christian virtue. How do you know you're saved? Okay. Yes, it's good to, to trust in God's promises that we see in His Word. That's true, we should. But there should be evidence of grace in your life. If you don't see any evidence of grace in your life, and nobody else sees any evidence of grace, my friend, you should be very concerned. Very concerned. We should see these last four beatitudes. Look at verse 7. Verse 7 is the the first one here. If you're a Christian, what's going to happen? If you're the one who's entered into that narrow gate, you're on your way to heaven, Jesus says you're going to be a merciful person. That's what verse 7 says. You will be merciful. This person is truly happy. If you're a Christian, then guess what? Then you've received mercy from God. <clears throat> and God says you need to show mercy to others. It's a flow on effect. Do you see that? You receive mercy, you need to pass it on. You need to be merciful to others. And if you're not a merciful person, then it's, it is likely, my friend, that you have not received God's mercy. Because God says if you've received His mercy you're going to show mercy to other people. And then in verse 9, if you have peace with God, then you're going to show peace to others. Again, you see that flow on effect? Receive mer- or peace from God, then you show peace to other people. My friend, if you've been justified, then you will show evidence of being set apart from sin in your life, and you're going to do that by being a peacemaker. That's what Jesus is saying here. Christian... Isn't going around trying to create conflict in the church. Not trying to cause division and cause problems, bite and devouring one another, as, as Scripture says. No. The one who who is godly is going to be a peacemaker. Going to do everything they can to, to have peace amongst one another. And then in verses 10 through 12, we we see here if Somebody's living out the realities of those first seven Beatitudes. What's going to happen in verses 10 through 12? My friend, you will be persecuted. And you know why you're going to be persecuted? Because you stand out amongst the crowd. You stand out kind of like, you ever seen those neon signs at nighttime? Neon signs, they really, they really show up really well at nighttime, don't they? You're going to be that lightning rod in the storm, so to speak. You know, the lightning rods they put on the top of buildings, so when the lightning comes down, it hits the rod and is and, directed to a safe place. My friend, you're going to be the lightning rod in the storm if you're living out those first seven beatitudes. You're going to be so countercultural that you're even going to stand out in the church. You're going to be like that salmon trying to swim upstream going to be resistance because people are going to be convicted as as they're around you you're going to be the light shining in the darkness people will persecute you because you're becoming like jesus christ that's why they persecuted christ they they didn't The people don't like their sin and the light exposes their darkness So if the world persecuted Jesus Christ, then you can expect the same treatment, the Bible says. So do you see the progression here? Everything's building to a climax. You say, well, what is the climax? Well, that climax happens when somebody enters into the narrow gate. They become a Christian. They're converted. They're born again. They're on their way to the kingdom of heaven. They're showing the virtues of meekness, purity, and peacemaking and then they're going to be persecuted for righteousness' sake. By the way, it's not persecuted for your own stupidity or your sinfulness. No, Jesus says you're persecuted for his sake, for righteousness' sake. So do you see how the, Jesus Christ has laid out this progression for us here? It's, it's wonderful to behold, isn't it? It really is awesome to see. Finally, let's see the results of true happiness. What happens to this type of a person? There are some wonderful results here. I want you to notice that all of the results differ except for number one and the last one. The first and the last. They, they, they all differ except for those two. I, I think the reason for that, and this isn't original with me, but, but I, I think the reason for that is they act kind of like bookends. Right You know what a bookend is, right? Everyone know what that is? Shake your head if you do, please. okay you know for example, if you're, if, you're, if you're passionate about books like I am, you know they, they seem to breed like rabbits in my house, you know I run out of book space, right? So what do you do? You start sticking them on top of the bookcase, right? So then what do you do when the top of the bookcase gets filled up? They start falling off the edges. What do you do? You use bookends, right? Put them on this end and on the other end. It keeps the book standing up so they don't fall over the place. Well, think of the first beatitude and the last beatitude as bookends. Holding all the ones in the middle together. It's a beautiful picture to behold here. So, here are the details, if you will. The the components, the layers of this blessedness, okay? Let's let's think through this with me, okay? In verse 3, what does it say in verse 3? What's the result of true happiness or true blessedness? You become an heir of the kingdom of heaven. You become an heir of the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? It means you enter into the kingdom. You become a child of God. You were adopted into his family. And now God's Father looks at you as one of his sons. Yes, that even includes you ladies. And you get all the, the rights and the privileges that come with adoption into God's family. My friend, by the way, you must be adopted into his family. Because John said that you're a child of the devil. That's what you're, That's the family you're born into. <laughs> and to get out of the devil's family, you've got to be adopted into God's family. So that's what verse 3 is talking about here. And then in verse 4, there's a comfort that comes to this person that Jesus is describing here. There's a comfort. And Jesus kind of elaborated on this comfort. Hopefully you know Matthew chapter 11, one of my favorite passages where Jesus says, he invites everyone to, come to me, Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty-eight, 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, Jesus says. What's Jesus like? Why should you learn of him? Because Jesus says, I'm gentle. I'm humble or lowly in heart. It says, My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Then in verse 5, it says, Jesus says, Here's the result. You will inherit the earth. That doesn't mean you're going to be rich and famous and powerful. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. And and remember, Jesus is, is speaking to Israelites, to Hebrews here. And the Israelites were promised that they would inherit the promised land. That's true. And, and one day they're going to get it in the millennium. But this is far better here. Far better. So wherever you are, and whatever you do in this life, God says you're going to receive God's blessing. You don't have to be a Hebrew or an Israelite or a Jew. Every believer is going to get this blessing. So during the thousand-year reign of Christ called the millennium, you're going to receive the, the entirety of this wonderful blessing can't even imagine what it's going to be like to have a perfect ruler by the name of Jesus Christ ruling and reigning on this earth peace reigning no wars no conflicts no economic crises or recessions going on there's no there's not going to be any famines in the millennium everybody's going to have enough food nobody's going to be fighting each other None of that stuff going on. Nobody murdering each other. You can leave your doors unlocked. You don't have to lock your doors all the time. Nobody's going to steal your stuff. The list goes on and on. It's a wonderful time, a wonderful place. And Jesus is saying, you're going to inherit that. It's coming, my friend. Then in verse 6, Jesus says, you will be filled. You'll be satisfied. Oh, how many people are so troubled in their souls? Oh, they might, they might put on the face and act act like you know, they're filled and they're satisfied, but in reality, if they don't have Christ, you can't be satisfied. It's impossible. Many troubled souls uh, go through life and, 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 and literally would be willing to cut off their right arm to be filled, to, to be satisfied. God says, I can give it to you. In fact, you don't even have to pay for it. Jesus says you don't even have to cut off your arm for it. It's free. The gift of salvation is free. You don't have to pay for it. Then in verse 7, it says we'll receive mercy. We receive mercy when we come into the kingdom. When you become a Christian, you, you receive God's mercy and grace. And, and and that's going to continue throughout your life. My friend, even after you're saved, you need God's mercy and grace. And that's a good thing. We really need it. We are desperate. Verse 8, it says we're going to see God. Whoa. Just meditate on that one today for a while, okay? That'll really heat your brain up and it'll start smoking. You're going... Think about that. You will see who? God. Do you want to see God? I hope you do. Just think about that. You're going to see God. You can't see God now, can you? you? That would be the most frightening thing in the whole universe. For us in our sinful state to see God, there's nothing more frightening than that. That would be the worst thing to ever happen. But when that sin nature is gone, that'll be the greatest thing. Because he's, he's the best, he's the most beautiful. There's, there's nothing better than God. And then in verse 9, we're going to be called sons of God. So not only do we get to see him, we, we, we get to call him Father. He's our Father. This is the assurance of true salvation here. True saving faith' it's a confidence that we have been adopted into His family. And of course, with that comes all kinds of wonderful rights and privileges which we don't have time to enumerate now. And then in verse nine it say, or, sorry, verse 10 it says, "We receive the kingdom of heaven." Wow. My friend, that's again, it's just there's so much to talk about there. We don't have time. I mean, you you think you want gold now? You think you want to be rich now? My friend, in heaven, God paves the streets with gold. That's what he does with gold in heaven. (laughs) Uh, You want diamonds now? Oh, God sticks those in the wall. You want rubies? Oh, God sticks those in the wall, too. Oh, how about emeralds? Those are beautiful. He sticks those in the wall. Right? That's what God does with that stuff. It's not that important, Really? We receive the kingdom of heaven. Verse 12, we receive a great reward in heaven. And you get to be associated with the prophets. You get to be associated with guys like, just think about this, Moses, Daniel, Elijah, Elisha, Samuel. Right? I want to be associated with those kind of guys. Right? I mean, won't that be cool to, to walk up to Daniel and say, hey, what's it like to use a lion as a pillow? cool. Or you get to you get to walk up to Elijah and say, "Hey Elijah, man, what's it what's it like to call down fire out of heaven?" That would have been cool. Or to go to heaven and riding in a chariot. Man, you get to associate with those kind of guys. Of course, that's not what all heaven is about, is it? But you do get to associate with them. You be like those prophets the Bible says. Well, these are the results of blessedness, okay? And I want to tell you my friend, you have never received an offer like this ever before in your life. And I'm sure you've received offers, haven't you? You know, you, you ever seen those obnoxious ads that pop up when you're when you're searching the internet on the computer? You know what I'm talking about? Congratulations, you've won a million dollars. You ever you ever get those? <laughs> By the way, click click on the little X, get rid of it because it's not true. <clears throat> right? Wonderful offer. You know, act now quick quick you're 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 you could win a million dollars or you get that thing in the mail you know the, you get the sweepstakes in the mail you know you got to respond to that one quickly too don't you in order because you could also win a million dollars or you could you could win the four-wheel drive vehicle or whatever it is get all these wonderful offers you know people offering us all sorts of things right But this is an offer you've never received. There is no offer like this one. This is the greatest offer you could ever receive. Far greater than a million dollars. And, and by the way, this, this offer is absolutely off the charts. <laughs> it's the greatest thing that's ever come to you. And unlike the, um, the little pop-up ads that come on your computer... When, when you're trying to search the internet for something, those little obnoxious, you know, advertisements and things, this, this offer is not too good to be true. Okay, God is not putting one of those little pop-up ads before you and then, you know, be like in an, an oasis, you know, poof, before your very eyes. No, He's not going to do that to you. He's not going to pull the rug out from underneath you and you're thinking, oh man, this is great. No, He's not going to do that. And You say why? Because. Well, for one thing, I know the one who's making the offer here. Do you? Do you know Jesus Christ? (laughs) If you know Jesus Christ, you're not going to say, well, man, that sounds good, but it sounds too good to be true. Does Jesus really mean this? Can Jesus do this for me? My friend, he can. He is good, and he is great, and he's always good, and he's always great. So when he says this, He backs it up with authority and power and riches and majesty and glory and honor that is immeasurable. These results are offered to you by Jesus Christ. So if you don't know Jesus Christ, then you're probably not going to believe the offer on hand. So my friend, go to the scriptures, find out who Jesus is. and You'll know that this offer is not too good to be true. So let me ask you, my friend, are you in the kingdom? Is there a moment in your life where you stopped trusting in yourself, you stopped worshiping yourself, and you said, there's no way I can get to heaven in my own strength, my own good works. My my, my good works are worthless before God. I stand condemned before a holy God. I need somebody to pay the penalty for my sin. I am guilty. I have sinned. I have broken God's law. All of them, by the way. None of us love God with all, and none of us love other people as we love ourselves. So we've broken all of God's laws. So we stand condemned before a holy God. That's a huge problem. We need Christ. Christ is the only one who kept the law in every point. He's the only one who's ever loved God with all and loved other people. So my friend, Christ, when he came to earth, he lived the life that you should have lived. And then he died the death that you deserve to die. He was your substitute. He took your place. My friend, when I was five years old, I realized I deserved to die on the cross because of my sin. But then I realized, wait a minute, Christ took my place. So I don't have to die on the cross for my sin. I like that option much better. (laughs) Because even if I did die on the cross, it's not good enough. Christ took my place. He paid the penalty for my sin. So I don't have to receive eternal condemnation from God. Christ absorbed the wrath that should have come my way. When I was five years old, I, I responded in faith. I put my total faith and my belief and trust in Christ alone. Because I knew if I, if I died that day, I'd, I'd spend eternity in the lake of fire. My friend, you can have that assurance too, just as I do. It's, it's, it's not a, I, I hope so, it's not a, I'm, I'm not proud, I'm no better off than anybody else in this world. Okay, sorry, I'm, not no, I'm no better than anyone else in this world. I am better off. But it's only because of Christ. So, you can be in the kingdom. You can know if you're to die today, and, and any of us could die today, by the way. You could die driving home. You could be one, the next person to drive off the bridge and find your body in the Waikato River. Like happened this week, right? That could happen to you. You could die at work or whatever. You could have a heart attack. There's a, and many ways that we can die, and it's really not hard. My friend, God says today is the day of salvation. Don't wait. Those of you who have come into the kingdom, let me ask you, are you poor in spirit? Do you, do you mourn? Are you meek? Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Do you show mercy to others? Are you pure in heart? Are you a peacemaker? Are you persecuted for your faith? Are you in the kingdom? Are you saved? Have you ever been born again? (laughs) So if you can honestly answer yes to these questions, then God says, you're in the kingdom. If you've never put your trust in Christ alone for eternal life, my friend, today is the day where that can happen. Christ is inviting you to come to him to find rest for your weary soul. I hope you can see a holy God, a God that judges sin, a God that does not overlook sin. He will judge it, but you can repent of your sin. You can turn from it. You can forsake your sin and put your faith in Him because He says He will forgive your sin because He is faithful and just to forgive sins and to cleanse from all unrighteousness. Well, what happens to the person who, who is, is living out and has these beatitudes, these attitudes in them? What happens? Look at the next verse. Verse 13, Matthew five thirteen. Essentially this, my friend, you will have an influence. You will have an impact. Look at verse 13. Because it says, you are the salt. Jesus doesn't say that you might be salt. You know, he says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste taste how shall its saltiness be restored it is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet you are the light of the world by the way too it says verse 14 so if you're a christian you're light and you're salt so what kind of an influence are you because that's what jesus is talking about here what kind of an influence are you well i hope you're you're doing what he talks about here in verse 14 Look at verse 14. It says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. My friends, look at verse 16. What is the whole purpose for being salt and light? What is the purpose for these attitudes that ought to be in us so that people can pat you on the back and say all kinds of nice things about you and say, oh, she's such a wonderful person. You know, I'm so glad I have her as a workmate. Or so people can praise you and say, Oh, you know, I really like that guy. Man, I wish he was my brother. No, is, is, is that what it's all about? No, look at verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others. Why? So they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. My friend, it's not all about you. It's not all about you. Your life, your influence is there for the purpose of bringing glory to God. You're to give the right opinion of God. That unsaved neighbor, who you might find to be a little pain in the neck at times, you're to be an influence to that person so they see God and give glory and honor and praise to Him. You're not to do good works for yourself not about us who are you living for what are you living for okay if it's all about christ then you got a great reason to live you got purpose to life you got a glorious future (laughs) you got it made my friend if you're if you've never put your faith in christ then you're on your way to hell okay That is not a glorious future. Those of you who are believers you've put your faith in Christ alone, don't lose sight of the gospel. Don't lose sight of the cross. Glory and boast in the cross of Christ. Don't lose sight of that. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. Move on in the Christian life and be more conformed to the the image of Christ. Don't be satisfied with, with, with a shallow Christianity. Move on so that your life would bring even more glory and honor to God the Father.